0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben.
1: And I'm Sarah.
0: How are you doing today, Sarah? All right. (laughs) We're still sick, so... That continues over from the previous episode. I'll probably sound worse this episode, and Sarah will probably sound better. But we're still probably both gonna sound sick. Deal with it. (laughs) (laughs) What can
1: you do? There's no, like, viral free filter you can put on audio when you're editing. Right. (laughs) What are we watching today, Ben?
0: Well, today we are watching our first movie of 1934. Ooh. Uh, it is called House of Mystery, uh, no relation to the long-running classic DC Comics horror anthology series, House huh. of Mystery. It
1: must be very mysterious how they are connected.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so where to start with this movie? I, I did say that it was a Poverty Row picture, so there, it, it's... <laughs> yeah. it must be a
1: real mystery as to why you're hesitating so much. Well... What's the mystery, Ben?
0: The story of this movie The mystery? Start- Ooh, The story of this movie <laughs> starts in 1925 with a successful Broadway play called The Gorilla. Alright. So The Gorilla was written by a playwright named Ralph Spence and ran for 257 performances on Broadway. So um,
1: fairly successful.
0: Fairly successful, yes.
1: That's a real mystery.
0: Ugh. The Gorilla was, in fact, a parody of 1920's The Bat and 1922's The Cat and the Canary. Oh, cool. Um, Which, like, themselves were already partially comedic plays. Yeah. Um, But yes, The Gorilla was a parody of them. Its primary contribution to this subgenre was that of an ape on the loose. Uh, In the play, The Gorilla is a secret escaped criminal like the Bat in The Bat, Mm. but there's also a real gorilla on the loose from the zoo. (laughs) And we've actually seen that gorilla addition to the old Dark House formula in movies already now, like The Monster Walks.
1: Yeah, I guess you can't really, like, trace it to Edgar Allan Poe's Murders in the Room Morgue because that's not really set in a house. Like, it yeah, has the orangutan, but yeah. that's the only thing.
0: Yeah, it's, it's putting those two elements together, right? The old dark house formula with the gorilla. Mm-hmm. The gorilla play was adapted to silent film in 1927 and to sound film in 1930, both times by Warner Brothers. Both films are lost, which is why we didn't watch them for the show. Also because they really are more just comedies. Uh, mm-hmm. even more than, you know, The Bat was.
1: But clearly a popular premise.
0: hmm And a further remake in 1939 is pure comedy. It's, you know, starring, like, a comedy troupe as the lead characters and stuff.
1: So if those are comedies, what's the mystery behind it being a horror movie here?
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm real sorry. So in 1926, the gorilla was ripped off by another playwright named Adam Shirk, for a Los Angeles production, so, you know, playing on the other side of the country, called The Ape. And The Ape was a much more straight-up murder mystery. It did retain the runaway ape from the gorilla, and then the other thing it added was, how do I say this, a Hindu curse to the plot. Oh, dear. Yeah, it's it's similar to... um, If any of our listeners have ever read something like The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins, where the descendants of British colonialists get targeted for revenge by, like, Hindu cultists from India, it's that sort of thing. Then added on top of the runaway ape from The Gorilla, which was on top of the bunch of old people have to stay the night in a big crumbly mansion thing from The Bat and the Cat and the Canary.
1: All right. Lots of circles in this Venn diagram.
0: Yeah. So the film rights for The Ape were then bought by Monogram Pictures. And the movie version was retitled House of Mystery. So that is how we arrive at this movie.
1: Okay. Do you know why they chose the name rather than just calling it The Ape? Mm. The Ape on film.
0: Yeah. Presumably it's either because someone decided that House of Mystery was a more evocative title, or it may also have been, and this doesn't sound like a Hollywood thing or a thing that a Poverty Row studio would do, but maybe they didn't want to be seen as ripping off King Kong.
1: They want to be seen ripping off the thing they're actually ripping off.
0: Yeah, although you would think that a B-movie studio would be fine with being seen as ripping off King Kong, but whatever, <laughs> they, they changed the title.
1: Real mystery there.
0: Monogram Pictures was a Poverty Row studio. Uh, it was founded in 1931 by the merger of Ray Johnston's Ray Art Productions and Trem Carr's Sono Art Worldwide Pictures. So these sort of two small, low budget operations joined forces to be a large, low budget operation. Monogram specialized in releasing action melodramas, mystery movies, uh, and then particularly the Lone Star franchise of Westerns, which were produced by Paul Malvern and starred a young John Wayne. This would be in the days sort of back when Westerns were exclusively almost a a B-movie genre and didn't really have that respectability that they would later get with Stagecoach, directed by John Ford.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: So House of Mystery was directed by William Nye, a prolific B-movie director of the period, and had cinematography by Archie Stout, who more typically worked as a second-unit photographer, known for outdoor work and westerns as part of John Wayne's camera crew. The cast of the movie is pretty large. There's a lot of people running around here. This sort of owes to the story's nature as an old dark house style story. Yeah. Um, just that overflow of characters.
1: Diversions.
0: Yeah. Some notable members of the cast include Verna Hilly, who is the highest billed actress in the cast list. Uh, she was yet another actress who got into the business from the Panther Woman contest for <laughs> Island of Lost Souls okay her mother had submitted her photo to the contest against her wishes just thinking like oh yeah you should go for this and like submitted the photo and then like mom i didn't want you to and while she lost the competition she was actually still given a minor contract by paramount uh to appear in in minor roles in their films Uh, however verna contracted bell's palsy so when that happened paramount dropped her from her contract And by 1934, she was doing westerns for Monogram, usually appearing as a romantic interest opposite John Wayne.
1: That's real shitty.
0: Yeah, so if you're not familiar with it, Bell's palsy is a condition where you might lose feeling or motion in part of your face and, you know, lack the ability to uh, maybe move certain muscles. Uh, Some of the muscles might droop, that sort of thing. Verna Hilly would end up quitting acting after 1938. So she didn't really stick in it that long. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another actor who I could draw your attention to in this large cast is Brandon Hurst. He plays the Hindu priest in the film, um, a role that this London-born actor essays under brownface. This was certainly a fall in favor for this actor. He had actually been a somebody in the 1920s. He had played George Carew in the 1920 version of Jekyll and Hyde. He was also Jehan Frollo in 1923's Hunchback of Notre Dame. He was the caliph in 1924's The Thief of Baghdad. He was Barcl Fedro in 1928's The Man Who Laughs. Uh, we've also seen him as the Prefect of Police in Murders in the Rue Morgue. And Silver the Butler in White Zombie. Okay. He had basically been the go-to guy for the distinguished villain in the 1920s, and then as sound came along, he was getting older, he was getting shuffled to these smaller and smaller roles, and now we're seeing him in a fairly small role in a Poverty Row movie.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Someone else in the cast who had her 15 minutes of fame was Joyzel Joyner who was a, uh, a dancer who appeared in a lot of Hollywood movies around this period, she had sort of shot to notability while also earning the ire of the censor boards after she performed the Dance of the Naked Moon in 1932's The Sign of the Cross. Okay. Sign of the Cross, we've, we've mentioned it before, Charles Lawton was in it, but it was one of those Cecil B. DeMille biblical epics. And when Cecil B. DeMille made these... Biblical epics, in some ways, they were excuses to put a lot of sex and violence on the screen that you could get away with because it was a Bible story. Sure. So, like, the the Dance of the Naked Moon is this section where Joyner's character is performing an erotic dance for a female character in the film who is a Christian as, like, a Roman attempt to try and, like, seduce this woman away from Christianity uh, and into, like, lust and sinfulness. Sure. So it's basically like a lesbian striptease dance. Yeah. So, of course, the censors were very not cool with that, um, and it kind of made Joyzelle Joyner a little bit famous for, like, this scandalous thing that she was in in this very popular movie. For her appearance in this film, she is playing Shonda, uh, another brown-faced role. Oh, boy. Um, and she actually acts in this film under a pseudonym, which is Leia Joy. There's a minor role played here by Gabby Hayes. Gabby Hayes got his big chance in acting due to a chance meeting he had with Monogram producer Trem Carr, who decided that he liked Gabby's look, basically, and began casting the 45-year-old actor in a variety of parts in Monogram's lineup of pictures. But eventually, his fame would come from when he began playing Willie Halliday in 1935, who is the sidekick To Hop Along Cassidy, uh, a very long-running series of westerns. And after he was in that series, he would go to other western movies. Uh, He was Roy Rogers' sidekick for a while, John Wayne's sidekick for a while. You know, he acted in westerns for years. His stock character was the Grizzled Codger. Um, You know, that character who comes and says, you know, Concern it! That guy with the beard and the hat and the vest. That's Gabby Hayes. He's the guy who... That's him. Everyone who's doing that is doing him. All right. So House of Mystery was released on March 30th, 1934. Again, kind of a gap from Invisible Man in November, right? Mm -hmm. We're really seeing the horror movie production slow down. And really a long gap since the last movie of this um, Old Dark House subgenre. I mean, Night of Terror was August. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure some people did go to see it at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure some bums were in those seats. It filled some spot in some theater's program. But it certainly didn't set the world on fire. Really? Yeah. There's no real records of reviews of this movie in newspapers. At the time, there's no real records of how it did financially. We just know that it existed. Okay. It has long since fallen into the public domain. You know, so this is really the kind of movie that survived because somebody sold it in a syndication package to late night tv shows you know in the 50s and 60s it's available today on dvd from alpha video and because it's in the public domain it is up on the scream scene playlist
1: if you would like to watch along with us you can find that playlist at our website screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com until then you will hear a brief musical interlude and we will be right back after watching house of mystery
0: (laughs) i'm so apprehensive because like Night of Terror was from a real studio, Columbia, and had a real actor, Bill Legosi, in it. This is the same thing from like Poverty Row and nobody really notable in it. So I'm just, ooh boy. Uh but we will see you on the other side, everybody.
1: We will answer the mystery as to its quality. Mm. Come on. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. We just finished watching House of Mystery from 1934. This is not a good movie.
0: (sighs) No, no, it isn't, Sarah. It's very bad, in fact.
1: Yeah, (laughs) we realized about halfway through we should have been doing one of those bad movie drinking games. Yeah. Every time you hear Jumming take a shot.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Watching this movie made me like Night of Terror. Like, it made me nostalgic for how good Night of Terror was. Yeah. That's how bad this movie is.
1: Like, on every level, this film is poorly done. Like, it's shot just like a regular movie. There's no, like, neat things going on with cinematography. There's a couple points where you feel like the director's like, oh, all the great directors... Put things in front of the lens to frame people. I'll do that,
0: and I, too, will be great. A lot of this movie shot really proscenium. Like, full body shots, you know, feet to head, stage. whole stage, you know, visible. Like, this is a movie from 1934, and if you told me it was from 1930, I would believe you. Yeah. Because it shows none of the progress that's been made in sound film in the past four years, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's talk about what the movie's about.
1: So the film opens in what it calls Asia, but it's India. I
0: mean, India's in Asia, but they could have been more specific. It's like... It's like when movies go to Africa, right? And they don't specify any further.
1: Anyways, so they're in India, and it's 1913. And we see this guy named Prendergast, who is an American archaeologist, and he's really showing just how much of a drunk jerk he is.
0: Yeah, he's an alcoholic, and no one likes him.
1: He's been cavorting with Shonda, a local woman who is a dancer. In the process of Prendergast being a jerk, uh, he goes to a temple and kills a monkey, but, like, just offhandedly. Yeah. So the priest of that temple invokes Kali, but who they consistently mispronounce as Kali.
0: Kali is a Hindu goddess. She is a destroyer, and I feel like the main thing that Kali is famous for at least in Western culture, is the thuggy cults that worshipped her. Okay. And if you've seen Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, that's what's going on in this movie. So that stuff sort of stayed pretty infamous in, like, British colonialist culture, those things, so that's probably why they're using her here. But, in, yeah, in this movie it's Kalai and it's uh, a male god because this movie doesn't give a shit.
1: Yeah, definitely. So this priest invokes who they call Kali, for a curse on Prendergast. And we see an ape, either who was just chilling there or was a statue. I I kind of glazed over. <laughs> My eyes glazed over. Uh, but an ape goes to attack Prendergast, uh, but Shonda rescues him. Now, Shonda's now shunned from her community for the sake of this guy.
0: Yeah, the, you know, in addition to killing the monkey, it also, I guess, is implied that they're angry at him because... She's not like she's a dancer at the temple. Yeah. So she's re- involved in the religion, so they're angry about her romantic relationship with Prendergast.
1: Later, we learn that Prendergast steals some artifacts and has returned to the United States with Shonda. Twenty years later, he's going by the name Pren, masquerading as a man with paralyzed legs. Mm -hmm. Investors of that original Indian expedition want their cut, uh, because Prendergast just kind of ghosted on them. You know, they get all of the investors together, and they go to Prendergast to be like, dude, we know where you are, give us our money. He explains that the treasure he has, and that has made him rich, is cursed, kind of harking back to this k curse that we see in the prologue and this treasure is so cursed in fact that even the priests wouldn't take the treasure back and two investors in the UK died from the curse after pren tried to give them their cut uh-huh. um and we hear from other dialogue that those two murders are a mystery eh a mystery to Scotland yard have not been solved because of this curse pren will only give the investors their cut if they stay in his house for a week to see if the curse sticks
0: feels like that's six days longer than he really needs, but... Yeah. You know.
1: Shonda is still around. She's relegated to being his housekeeper. They're not married or anything like that. And Pren actually pursues his young nurse, Ellen, as a wife. So murders happen in this mansion. I won't go into every detail (laughs) how they happen consecutively, because there's a lot. Uh, But suffice it to say that when a murder happens... There's incense burning in the room, and there's the signature sound of tom-toms being drummed. And uh, it's a diegetic sound. People react to it and are scared. We see, as do the characters, an ape going and murdering these people.
0: Yeah, and I mean, if you've seen the Bad, or the Bat Whispers, or the Cat in the Canary, or the Monster Walks, or Night of Terror, it's that same kind of bunch of people in a mansion running from room to room every time we turn around or turn off the lights or someone leaves the group, they die. Mm -hmm. They even do, like, the seance scene that we've seen a couple times by now. It's all fairly old hat by this point. And as you were saying at at the top, none of it's done with anywhere near the um, skill of those other movies.
1: (laughs) I did forget to mention that Pren Prendergast has a big stuffed ape in his study (laughs) that is like, no, for sure, it's dead, it's, it's whatever, but it, that's a thing that's in his house. Anyways, with the police involved after the first murder and subsequent murders, uh, it's clear that th- these police are actually very ineffectual because they, as well as many characters, are a comic relief. Then these notes from Scotland Yard start appearing in the house for the guests, telling the guests to try to get out of the house, make it not suspicious to Pren and meet at the district attorney's office as soon as possible. There's there's more mystery, more than just the murders mm. in this house. Yes. So as all of these people leave, the only people left in the house are Pren, Shonda, and Ellen. Now that these three people are kind of alone, Pren, when Shonda's out of the room, proposes to Ellen, who is clearly not interested, but Shonda overhears, and it just kind of stokes that jealousy even more. When Ellen is out of the room, Pren and Shonda kind of go back over the plan of how they've been doing these murders, and this is when Pren reveals to the audience that he is in fact not paralyzed, and They kind of revel, or at least Pren revels in the fact that, yeah, these people are murdered and dead and gone. I get to keep the treasure. Uh, This curse came in handy after all. Like, clearly just using the curse to kind of stoke the fears of people. In the midst of doing this, he's also trying to get Shonda to go back to India so he can get out cuddly with Ellen, and Shonda's not having any of that. So she lights some incense and leaves the room and locks Pren in. An ape appears and starts attacking Pren and kills him. Shonda also goes to light incense in Ellen's room, and she too is attacked. But everyone, as in all of the rest of the cast, arrives back at the house in time to shoot this ape and save Ellen. They go to take the mask off of (laughs) the ape, and lo and behold, it's actually attached because it's a real ape. So that's interesting. There's the real ape, and then we go into a scene where the man from Scotland Yard explains the plot to the audience where the ape was real and was trained by Shonda to attack whoever was in the room with the incense whenever the ape would hear the drums and smell the incense. Shonda is on the run now, and he has a plan to catch her. End of movie.
0: Yeah. <laughs> the climax happens, and then the scene's just tagged on at the end to tie up all the loose ends and explain all the stuff. This movie has a lot of problems. Like, like a lot. Like, it's bad. It, like, we keep saying, it's, been, it's poorly made. I think that's, first and foremost, it's poorly made. Like, you know, it's a crew trying to make one of these mystery murder house movies without understanding why any of the previous ones worked. Hmm. We've seen this subgenre kind of rise and fall, and this is worse than any of the ones we've seen so far. I mean, this is so sophomoric in its attempts, just by the numbers, you know, checking things off the checklist of things you got to have.
1: You have the overwhelming number of investors or people who will be coming to inherit something Mm -hmm. um who are all played for comedic relief um we have the central like one or two people i guess in this movie three who are not played for comedic effect and then you have like bumbling police officers
0: the reason in the movie like this you have a huge cast is so that people can go off from the group and get separated and you lose track of them so that you're never sure who's doing what when, so you're not sure who the the murderers are. But, like, this movie forgets to do that. It makes a big point of showing you a guy leave and then tries to make you wonder, oh, who's this guy we just found dead? And, of course, it's the guy we just saw leave the group. Like, it's a very incompetent movie.
1: And, like, everyone is moving from room to room all together. Yes. No one's, like, splitting up. It's to the point. Like, there's so many people in this movie that, like Ben said in the beginning, like... It's shot like it's on a stage, right? Yeah. Like, there's no close-ups or anything like that. And people are struggling to get in frame of the camera in order to peer at whatever clue we're supposed to be looking at. Yeah. There's too many people in this movie. And they
0: and they move like a gestalt entity. There's no reason, plot-wise, <laughs> for them to be different. The only thing... Like a di- flock
1: of flamingos. Yeah,
0: the only thing that distinguishes them is what their different comedic shticks are. There's a an old, bickering, married couple. Uh, there's a couple of lesbians lesbians the ostensible romantic lead who's a scummy jerk there's the ostensible female romantic lead who's the nurse there's some other random people who die like it doesn't matter there's a, a corny old janitor who is like the most extreme towards comedy of all these characters he turns out to be the scotland yard guy whatever one of the problems i have with this movie is like it doesn't work as horror because it's not scary but at the same time it doesn't work as mystery either because it's both an impossible to solve mystery and the easiest mystery in the world to solve at the same time. That's how incompetent this story is. Okay. The reason it's impossible to solve is because um, it doesn't play fair by the audience, right? All of the clues that you need to understand what's going on aren't told to you until after everyone's dead and it's the Scotland Yard guy post-facto explaining it to everybody, right? Yeah. Like, one of the things that comes out in that little epilogue scene is him Ugh. saying, you know, them being like, well, how did they get an ape? And the guy being like, oh, an ape was stolen from the zoo two weeks ago. And it's like, oh, if we had known that earlier, that would have been a clue, right? Yeah. Yeah. But instead, it's just a thing you're explaining after the fact. Or the fact that Shonda herself was a priestess of k so she knew how to train the ape, and, like, on and on and on. On the other hand, it's the easiest mystery in the world to solve because Prendergast in the prologue is a scumbag. He's a piece of shit. When we meet him in the present and he's in the wheelchair, he seems to be like this much nicer guy. Mm -hmm. As if
1: he's learned the error of his ways. Right.
0: The very first scene that all the investors are in the mansion and Prendergast is explaining his condition for giving them the money and he says, you know, there's this curse and it's awful, and if I give you any of the money, you'll be under the curse. And like I tried to give it to these two other guys, and they became under the curse, and they died. And I was just sitting there being like, wow, this is a really effective way to convince people to not want the money that you owe them. And it turns out that's exactly what it is. You can't solve the mystery by the clues, but in terms of just thinking of what the most obvious answer is, it's the most obvious answer. They keep showing Shonda, and she... Despite the one being the ultimate villain, she spends most of the movie just kind of floating around in the background, staring at people angrily, very little dialogue for her. And the way the movie shoots her, the movie's going, she's the villain. And just from several other movies in the past in this genre, you expect that whoever the movie really obviously singles out to be the villain is going to be a red herring. Mm -hmm. And then it's just not.
1: There was something you mentioned earlier about how this movie doesn't work as a mystery, Mm -hmm. and how it doesn't work as horror. I think you've hit the nail on the head for why it doesn't work as a mystery. The reason why it doesn't seem to work as horror is because murders happen, people scream, and then they move on with the next line in the script. There's no (laughs) weight to anything.
0: Yeah, there's this, I called them lesbians because they don't actually use that word, but there's these two women who introduce each other as each other's companion and they don't go anywhere without each other. They can't call them lesbians, but that's what they are. And one of them dies. One of them's, like, the first murder victim, and the other one barely reacts to it. No one reacts to it. Like, they
1: scream when it happens during the seance. They see the ape moving towards the table, and they're like, Oh my god, an ape's in the room! Someone get the lights! What's happening? And they're sitting at the table, and you see, like, the arm come around her neck and, like, grab her, and that's that's her death. Yeah. Like, that's it. The nurse runs over and she's like, yeah, she's dead. Can she be revived? I don't think so. Her neck is broken. Oh. And then the worst part of it, and I don't think it was played for laughs in the sense of like, someone just died and he's already doing this. But one of the jerky guys who's the romantic lead is an insurance salesman. And so with people dying, he's like, hey, want, want insurance? People are going to die. By by life insurance. Yeah. As the scene ends, he's doing that thing of like, "Hey, don't you guys wish you had insurance now?" or something like that. And yes, it's kind of like, "Dude, someone just died." But also, where he's staged his on the person's dead body. Yeah. And like the way that everyone's crowding around, like, and then like just kind of standing there, like not even making jokes, but just saying whatever is next in the script. Like nothing has weight.
0: Like you said, I think it was a very smart thing to point out, like, this movie's so crowded in its framing because it seems like it's trying to have all the characters in the frame at all times. So, like, things are just awkwardly staged.
1: And that's also counterintuitive to what you want in a murder mystery film like this. Yeah. Because
0: you want people to not be able to fit into frame. Yeah, you want people to be off screen for a while so that we forget what's going on with them. And, you know, the other thing about this movie is horror. Like you said, it has no weight. So much of what can make a horror film successful is style. Yeah. We've talked before about the fine line between horror and comedy. And I feel like so much of the difference between something that's scary and something that's funny is how you stage it, how you shoot it, how you time it, right? Here, it's neither scary or funny. Things are just kind of there. It feels like people who know, you know, how to work a camera and turn on lights... But they have no art in their craft at all, right? It's just, point the lens at the thing, make sure stuff's in focus.
1: And you totally see that in the execution of everything, too, because there are a couple points where someone nearly flubs a line, or, like, is about to flub, stops, (laughs) and then, like, says the next word. And... Uh, Someone's pretending to be an ape like he's in an ape suit and he's walking towards (laughs) a a door and he's like the shot that we get and it's out of nowhere is just like the shot of the monkey walking across the floor and then like struggling to open a door. And it's like, what the point is this shot? Why do we have this shot
0: here? And he's clearly struggling with it because, like, he can't quite see out of the ape mask and stuff. Yeah. And they just left it in the movie. Yes,
1: second takes are for losers.
0: Yeah, there are no, this is definitely a movie with no second takes. Like, unless they actually flub a line. But, like, if it gets close to flub and they don't, they, they keep it in. Yeah. Right? Like, there's definitely a part where one of the characters forgets what his next word is. And has to, like, stop remember and then continues his sentence. It, yeah it's, it's like Ed Wood. It's very close to Ed Wood. It's very close. Um, it's not bizarre enough is the problem. Like yeah, the thing yeah. that keeps you going in an Yeah, the voice.
1: ape was a vampire.
0: Right. Who was also <laughs> from space. Like yeah. it, it doesn't quite go far enough. Some of the acting is competent. The best the best actors in this movie are competent the worst, you know, like, that's the scale. Like, the best you get is like, okay, yeah, that man can act. Yeah. Period, right? Yeah. It should be kind of clear from everything we've said so far. Like, this is this movie's pretty racist.
1: Oh, yeah. Like, we, we talked about the brown face, mm-hmm. um, but we also get lines like, one of the, <laughs> I guess, lesbians is a spiritualist, and she concludes that she'll hold a seance to contact... Pocahontas, and Pocahontas will tell them where the money is hidden in the in the mansion.
0: And this is so inexplicable. Like, why is it Pocah? Like, okay, the joke with this spiritualist lady is supposed to be that she's a little kooky, right? That she's not quite right in the head, maybe, and like, that she's got funny ideas and stuff. So we're supposed to be laughing at this, right? It's not serious that she's contacting Pocahontas, but you're still like, why is that what you chose? What's the joke here? And so it's just very uncomfortable. Like, you're watching it. It's just uncomfortable that she keeps invoking Pocahontas as the spirit who's going to explain the mystery to them. And then there's a lot of racial jokes at the expense of this choice of a spiritual patron.
1: Yeah. There's some jokes about Shonda as well. It's it's just
0: all bad. And the, the appropriation of, like, Hindu religion is bad, too. You know, we mentioned, like, they're pronouncing this deity's name wrong, they've got the gender on this deity wrong, they've got the the sort of portfolio of this deity mostly wrong like you know the the thing that they really make a big deal about is saying that Kali is really into monkeys and apes, which is like neither here nor there. Like many bad choices. I feel like there's a scale to cultural appropriation or a spectrum where on sort of the one side of it, you know, you can be very accurate to the culture and very respectful of the culture. And it's still appropriative because you're not of that culture, but you're using it for your story or your product, right? Even if you've got it all right, you did your research. And I feel like the other side of that scale is something like this, where you just did not give a shit, right? You, You took some stuff you half remembered hearing or reading in a reader's digest one afternoon and wrote a script about it in a weekend.
1: I feel like anything else we have to say about this film is just continually ragging on it and describing how bad it is. So I don't know how productive that might be. So That's for the fair. sake of time for our listeners, would you like to move on to ranking?
0: Yeah. It's
1: It's all out of your system.
0: Yeah, I think I've hit all the major points of why this is especially bad versus why some of some other movies are bad. For sure. If that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, yeah. What was your range?
0: 47 to 50. Really? Yeah, in the sense that I wanted to give this movie a chance to be better than Wolfblood, have the discussion of is this better or worse than Wolfblood, because I'm leaning towards it's worse than Wolfblood. I mean, this is definitely worse than Night of Terror, and we put Night of Terror above Monster Walks, and this is definitely worse than Monster Walks.
1: What about the 1913 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde?
0: So the the 1913 Jekyll and Hyde ranked so low because its conception of what is scary was in error. That's the one where Hyde's sort of jumping up and down like a monkey.
1: Yeah, and, jumping at people.
0: Yeah, and it's just comical because there's nothing scary about it. But I feel like that movie wanted to be something, right? Like that was... Uh, a 22-minute film, which was, like, really long at the time, and it was uh, Carl Lemley and King Baggett, the star of stage and screen, and, you know, it, it really wanted to try and be something, and it just kind of failed at it. This movie's not even trying to be anything, right? This movie exists to fill an hour of someone's life while they are necking with their date in a theater, right? There's no... I feel like this is a movie that doesn't expect you to even be watching it while it's on.
1: (laughs) So, is that kind of why you put it below Le Chaudre Infernal and The Haunted Curiosity Shop?
0: Yeah, I feel like, ultimately, those movies at least have imagination. Like, like those Melia shorts and stuff, it's like, you have to have imagination and passion for what you're doing, right? There's no imagination in this movie. Every single thing that's in this movie is lifted from somewhere else. There is no original ideas here. This is all just badly copying stuff that's worked for other people.
1: Why were you putting it below Wolfblood? Like, what, Like to you, why would Wolfblood be better than this movie?
0: <laughs> so this is the discussion I wanted to have. I want... I, I, I wasn't... This is why this was my range. I could either see this going above Wolfblood or below Wolfblood. Wolfblood's bad, but I feel like a lot of our negativity towards Wolfblood was based around
1: Disappointment.
0: Feeling like we were sold a bill of goods, right? That, like, we went into it expecting a werewolf movie and it wasn't that. And how much can you penalize it when there are no other werewolf movies, right? It's not trying, you know, to say this is a werewolf movie and then you go to it. Like, there are no other werewolf movies yet. Yeah. So what are we comparing it to, right? We felt disappointed. The movie's plot, you know, ultimately doesn't start until an hour in, and it's like an hour and 15 minutes long, if I remember correctly. Yeah,
1: something like that.
0: But, like, that hour before the plot actually starts, you know, has stuff about the logging industry and this romance, and, and they're out on location. You know, there was, again, there was some effort. I don't like Wolfblood. It's not good. But, like, again, I feel like the people making Wolfblood were putting effort into what they're, they were doing. They just didn't make a good movie. This, again, this movie has no effort, and we knew what to expect, too, right? We knew this was going to be a Night of Terror, Monster Walks, Old Dark House, Cat in the Canary, the Bat, the Bat Whispers, the Monster-style movie. We, we've, we've seen this movie a million times already, so there was no expectations that we were being let down on. We knew what to expect, and it was still bad mm mm-hmm.
1: So this is harking back to our very first episode, but the difference between number forty eight Le Manoir du diable and forty nine Le Chateau Hunt is le Manoir du diable is eighteen ninety six it's Milliez's first time trying to make a film and it has some like neat stuff going on and then Le Chateau Hunt is the following year, and he's
0: just doing the same thing in color, but yes. <laughs>
1: So, based on reminding people about what that is, do you feel that House of Mystery should go above or below Le Chateau Haunt? Because we've talked about how it's derivative and things like that. I feel like it should go below because we have expectations for film by this point. Yeah. And this is even just bad on that account. Um, whereas Le Chateau Haunt, like I think that's like the second earliest <laughs> film. You know, um, so I'm kind of giving it more leeway for that, I guess. Um, but I'm curious what you think.
0: I think you brought up an interesting word that I want to unpack, which is derivative. Mm. Because that second Melia's movie, uh, which we ranked a spot lower, I think, we decided it was derivative and we thought to ourselves, the more original idea should go first. Yes, it's derivative, but it's derivative in the sense that Melius is trying to improve what he did the year before. He's doing the same thing, but he's trying to get better at it. You know, he's, he's on his grind. hmm This movie's derivative, and it's not improving. It's worse, right? It, this is recycling stuff, but it's like reverse recycling. Like, like, in the sense that, you know, normally you have garbage, and then you put it in recycling, and they break down the garbage and use it to make new product. And this is like if you took product like Cat in the Canary and you're like, oh, what a good movie. And you took it to the recycling and you recycled it into garbage. That's what this movie is <laughs> it's recycled garbage. Like, it is derivative, but it's not improving on that stuff. You know, you could be getting better with each single iteration of these old Dark House movies, and instead they're just getting worse. Mm hmm. So I kind of want to put it below. Sure. The bottom of the list.
1: Bottom of the list.
0: What a significant milestone (laughs) that we have 50 movies on the list, and this is the worst one.
1: But it is not a mystery as to why it's there.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm glad you got to continue that bit through the whole show. Um,
1: I mean, the... (laughs) The police officer, in particular, makes all these monkey puns, I guess. Like, he says, like, you won't make a monkey, don't go out of me, or yeah. whatever. Um, and so I was, like, watching the movie thinking, should I have switched to monkey, something about monkeys instead of mystery in the show? I'll just stick with mystery. Keep it going. Be consistent.
0: Okay, so we've crossed 50 movies. Uh, we have more than 50 films on the Scream scene ranking list now. Yeah. Halfway to 100. And number 51 is House of Mystery, 1934, directed by William Nye.
1: If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to previous episodes, see what we had to say about other films, listen to the Wolfblood episode, <laughs> who knows? On our website, you will also find an appeals box box where you can submit appeals, but also concerns, questions, and uh, any ideas you might have for the show. Feel free to also email us at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com or chat with us on Twitter at underscore ScreamScene.
0: ScreamScene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts and is also available through most podcatching apps through our RSS feed. If you'd like to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or a comment on SoundCloud, it would be much appreciated. It helps other people find the show and just lets us know uh, what you think about it.
1: Mm-hmm. What are we watching next week, Ben?
0: Next week, we're going to have a probably significant upturn in quality. Uh, so, sort of an apology for this movie. Next week, we are watching The Black Cat, starring Boris Karloff and Bella Lugosi. Ooh,
1: their this first, movie is so good!
0: It's their first movie together.
1: Yeah. The uh, tension between them has been brewing, <laughs>
0: growing. Yeah, it's it's a really good movie. It's one of our favorites, so we're definitely looking forward to covering it.
1: All right. Well, we will see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.